Well, hey friends, great to be with you today. If you've been listening to me for any length of time, you know that I work pretty hard on the introduction to my sermons. I want to get your attention right from the get-go, raise a question or create some disequilibrium that will cause us to lean into the scripture text and theme. Well, today, I don't think I have to work too hard at getting your attention or creating disequilibrium. If you got my email this week, you know what I'm talking about. If you didn't, I'll try to catch you up. This week, I announced to the staff and congregation that the next ministry year will be my last year in the senior pastor role at Grace Chapel, finishing up a year from now in May of 2024. Now, there's no dark story behind this decision. We've enjoyed 23 wonderful years here at Grace. The Lord has done more than we could have asked or imagined in our lives and in the church. And this past year in particular has been a source of great joy and blessing. So there's no crisis or scandal. There's no conflict with staff or the board or the congregation. There's no better offer out there, except maybe grandkids. There's simply a settled conviction, after much prayer and deliberation, that this is the right time for me and for the church. The elders and I have been in conversation about this for a few years, as any healthy organization should. Karen and I, of course, have been seeking God's leading for our ministry and family life for some time now. And, and, and I've been in conversation with colleagues and mentors as well, wanting to leave well and at the right time. So here we are sensing that the Lord is leading us into a new season of ministry and leading Grace Chapel into a new chapter in its, its story, uh, which I'll talk more about in the message in just a few minutes. And Lord willing, it's not goodbye. We, we don't plan on leaving the area, and the elders and I have talked about me serving in a pastor emeritus role going forward, supporting the ministry in ways yet to be determined. As someone pointed out, it's not a bittersweet moment, because there's really nothing bitter about it. There are mixed feelings, to be sure. Gratitude and expectancy on the one hand, but sadness and a sense of loss as well. It's not easy to walk away from people and a work that we love so deeply. It's brought us such joy. But we knew the day had to come at some point. Leaving in the middle of COVID certainly didn't seem like the right time, although it was tempting at moments. But now that we're on the other side of the pandemic, finding new energy and momentum, and with next year being my 40th year as a senior pastor, it feels like that time has come. So I realize this is big news and a lot to process, which is why I wanted to give you a few days to sit with it before we all showed up today. At the end of the message, our elder chair, Cynthia Fantasia, will come and she'll share a brief word and prayer. Now, if you didn't get the email, uh, be sure to check our website and you can find all the information there. But as I said in the letter, I'm not done yet. I figure I've got about 40 sermons to preach between now and next May. And I want to make every one count, including this one. So knowing we'd be making the announcement this week, we arranged the Revelation series so I could speak on the church today which will give me a chance to share a bit more of my own story and also speak into Grace Chapel's story. But before we do that, let's just pause and pray for a moment. Lord, we pause for a moment this morning 
to acknowledge that this is a significant moment in the life of this church. And it brings a bit of unsettledness to all of our lives. But we're glad to know that you knew this moment was coming, that you promised not only to be with us in it, but to do something good and beautiful and eternal through it. We're grateful to have your word to turn to for comfort and guidance, and pray that as we open the scriptures and our hearts to you and to each other, as we've done so many times over the years, that we might hear what your spirit is saying to the church that you and we love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you all know, I've been a church rat my whole life. I was born into my father's little country church, was raised in a thriving suburban church, and have devoted my entire adult life to serving and building two wonderful churches that I've loved with my whole heart. Now, it's not to say that the church has never disappointed me or gotten things wrong, but I continue to believe with all my heart that when the local church gets it right, it's one of the most beautiful, powerful, and transformative forces on planet Earth. But turns out not everyone feels that way. I'm in a Facebook group called Rockland County Back in the Day. It's basically a bunch of boomers sharing photos and reminiscing about growing up in suburban New York. Well, just last week, someone posted a picture of a synagogue that was thriving in the 70s, but recently closed. And she wrote underneath, synagogues, churches, and schools that were around for decades closed in the last 10 years. Fewer people are attending religious services. Only memories remain. It's sad. Well, the next day, someone posted a comment. It's not sad. It's good. And as usually happens on social media, a lively debate followed. And more than a few people agreed with the critic, citing the harm that's been done in the name of religion, which is considerable if we're honest with ourselves. So, is the church good for the world? And if so, why and when? And what does it have to do with Grace Chapel as we come to a transitional moment in our history? Well, with those questions in mind, let's turn once again to the final book of the Bible called The Revelation, a book that we've said is from God, about Jesus, to the church, and for the world. Two weeks ago, we talked about a savior for the world. Last week, we talked about worship for the world. And today, we'll talk about a church for the world. Let's start with the opening lines of the book, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, and then we'll get to our main text for the day. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard a voice behind me like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, these verses remind us that, that the book of Revelation isn't just a random piece of writing from the ancient world. It's not an essay or a speech or a proclamation. It's a letter, a pastoral letter from the last living apostle, John, 
to seven local churches located in a specific time and specific places. The revelation wasn't meant to be a roadmap for the end of the world sealed up in a time capsule to be decoded two millennia later. It was meant to disciple believers and shape churches for life and mission in a changing and sometimes frightening world. Well, a quick look at a map will get us oriented here. You can see that these seven churches formed a sort of circuit or network of churches in what we would call Western Turkey. You you could think of it as a multi-site church without the big screens. And each of these seven messages follows a similar format with some minor variations. An introduction, followed by words of affirmation, words of rebuke, a warning and or promise, and an invitation to hear what the Spirit is saying. So we're going to focus on just one of those churches today, the church in Ephesus. Not only because it, becomes, because it comes first or because it was the most prominent, because I believe it has the most relevance to Grace Chapel. So let's jump ahead to chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Well, we learned back in chapter 1 that the one who holds the seven stars is Jesus, and that the seven golden lampstands represent the church. And here in chapter 2, we're told that Jesus walks among the lampstands. Now, that would have been a comforting image to those seven churches. They needed to know that the risen and exalted Christ was still present to and with and among his churches. And it's a comforting image to us, too, because it means Jesus is just as present to his churches today, including the one in Lexington and East Lexington and Wilmington and Watertown and Foxborough and Amherst and online. Now, the the news I shared this week may have caught you by surprise. How can Brian leave now? Things are going so well. He's so young. Not really. 66, if you want to know. But Jesus is not surprised by this news. He's been walking among us. He's been paying attention. In other places, the church is described as the bride of Christ which suggests that Christ loves the church. And not just the church at large, but local churches. Even churches that need to be rebuked and warned sometimes. There are no perfect churches, just real ones. And Jesus loves all of them, including ours. And by opening the revelation with these letters to the churches, Jesus is declaring that the church is central to his mission. There's no discipleship or disciple-making apart from the church. There's no getting chapter 21 and 22 to the new heaven and new earth apart from the church. Jesus believes in the church. He trusts churches like ours to fulfill his mission in the world. And he's walking among us today, holding us in his strong right hand. And his message to Ephesus and to us today 
begins with affirmation. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now, the church in Ephesus was the most prominent of these seven churches. Most likely, it was the largest, and it was strategically located in a seaport city. So its influence extended throughout the region. The church had an impressive pedigree. The Apostle Paul spent more time in Ephesus than any other church. And he and they wept when he left them in Acts chapter 20. It was the church of Apollos, the gifted preacher, and of Priscilla, one of the first women teachers and leaders of the church. There was a lot to affirm about this church. It was an active church. I know your deeds, he says, your hard work and your perseverance. Now, we're not told what those deeds were, but most likely they were the things we see the early church doing in the book of Acts, gathering for worship studying the scriptures, caring for each other, serving the poor and needy, and sharing the good news of Jesus with their communities. But they didn't just do those things. They did them with diligence and excellence, we're told. We're also told that they were doctrinally and ethically sound, that they weren't afraid to confront bad behavior and to discern bad teaching. And they persevered through difficult seasons, whether internal conflicts or external threats. Well, you could affirm many of the same things about Grace Chapel. At a recent team meeting, we put every ministering event on a post-it note and plastered the wall with them. It was scary how many things there were there. There's not a day of the week that something's not going on on one of our campuses. Our staff team is capable and committed and doing great work together right now. (laughs) If you're at our worship night on Friday, you know what I mean. Our elders have exercised great discernment and oversight over the years, providing doctrinal and organizational integrity. And I am constantly amazed at the dedication and commitment of our lay leaders and volunteers in every area of ministry here at Grace. In terms of influence, Grace Chapel's ministry touches thousands of lives every week and tens of thousands more when you consider the staff and the members who've gone on from this place to serve other churches in the region and across the country. Everywhere I go, I bump into people who tell me about the impact that Grace Chapel had on their lives during their time in Boston. And in terms of perseverance, For seven-plus decades, Grace has maintained health and vitality and influence through all kinds of challenges, doctrinal controversies, pastoral transitions, worship wars, financial setbacks, contentious elections, demographic shifts, and most recently, a global pandemic. But here we are emerging from that pandemic with new energy and and momentum. 
I believe grace is well positioned to make this transition and allow the Lord to write the next chapter in a great story. When I'm describing Grace Chapel to people, I often say it has good bones, which is how realtors talk about houses that are well-built and well-designed. They can stand the test of time and makeovers. And that's true of grace. It has been tested and come through again and again over the years. And just to be clear, the bones of the church, I'm not talking about the pastoral staff. I mean, we do our part for sure, but, but we come and go. It's the elders, it's the lay leaders, it's the volunteers and the givers and the prayers who make Grace Chapel the vibrant, effective, influential church that it is. And it's why I feel honored to have served this church for 20 plus years and why I have great confidence in its future. So there was a lot to affirm about the church at Ephesus, and there's a lot to affirm about Grace Chapel. But Christ's message to this church also comes with a rebuke. Let's pick it up at verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Yikes. <laughs> That's pretty tough talk from our good shepherd Jesus. And it's a little bit puzzling. The rebukes he offers to the other churches are a little more straightforward. He rebukes the church at Pergamum for bad teaching. He rebukes the church at Thyatira for bad behavior. He rebukes Laodicea for being lukewarm, apathetic. But, but what does it mean to forsake the love you had at first? Or as some translations put it, to, to have left your first love. What love were they forsaking? Was it their love for God? In all of their ministry activity, were they forsaking prayer and worship and communion with God? It's possible. Many of us know from experience how easy it is to be so busy with the work of the Lord that we neglect the Lord of the work, as Oswald Chambers famously put it. It can happen to individuals, it can happen to churches, especially in a high-energy, high-performing environment like we find here in Greater Boston. So had they forsaken their love for God or had they forsaken their love for one another? Were they working so hard that they were neglecting to care for one another, to spend time with each other? In their commitment to doctrinal integrity, had they been harsh and judgmental with each other? That can happen too. We've heard too many stories recently of churches and church leaders undone by a toxic work environment or bullying behavior. In recent years, we've seen how divisiveness and judgmentalism can infect the church and ruin relationships. So had they forsaken their love for God or their love for one another? Until recently, most scholars and teachers focused on one of those two possibilities. 
But a few contemporary commentators are considering a third possibility, and it's one that I find intriguing. And that is that the Ephesian believers had forsaken their love for the world, for people who were far from God and outside the community of faith, that they'd lost sight of their mission, had forgotten that the final thing Jesus said to them was, go, make disciples of all nations, be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's that phrase, the things you did at first, that I find intriguing. What's the first thing you notice about a new believer? I can't stop telling people about Jesus, right? I mean, they can be downright obnoxious sometimes. We've all done it. But, But they're so excited about what they found, so grateful for what Christ has done for them, they want everyone to know. And what's the most striking characteristic of a new church? One that's just been planted in a city or a neighborhood. They want to grow, right? They're crazy about reaching new people, especially people who are far from God in church. They'll try anything. They'll approach anybody. Those are the things you do at first. When you first come to Christ, when you first start a church, you want to share his love with everyone. I did a little research into Grace Chapel's history, and I was struck by a few things. The first thing that struck me was that this coming October will mark the 75th anniversary of the first Bible study held in a living room here in Lexington. Four couples began meeting in 1948 to study the scripture and consider starting a new church here in the growing western suburbs of Boston. The second thing that struck me was that the church held its first public worship service in 1956, which just happens to be the year I was born. (laughs) I'm just saying. But the most striking thing about the beginnings of Grace Chapel was how focused they were on outreach, on sharing the love of Christ with people who had never understood or experienced it. Again and again and again, these founding documents talk about sharing the gospel and loving their neighbors and being a witness and opening the doors to all kinds of people. That's why they were non-denominational. That's why they chose the name Grace. Serving and reaching people with the good news of God's love in Christ. That was Grace Chapel's first love. So back to our question, we don't know exactly which love the Ephesian church had forsaken. Their love for God, their love for one another, or their love for the world. Maybe it was all three. But when I think about a church like Ephesus or a church like Grace, it seems to me that the greatest danger isn't that we'll lose our love for Christ or our love for one another. It's that we'll neglect our love for the world, for the mission, for people who are hurting and searching and far from God and church. I came across a statistic once that the typical new church stops growing and reaching new people somewhere around year 10, 11, or 12. Something happens about 10 or 12 years into a new church 
that causes it to become inward in its focus. All or most of the energy goes towards keeping the members happy and keeping the ministry going. Which means that a healthy church has to keep renewing and revitalizing and reimagining their mission. And Grace Chapel has done that many, many times over the decades. I got to thinking about our own history together. In our first decade together, the 2000s, we, we rebuilt the Lexington campus. We started Alpha and CR and life communities and all kinds of new things in an attempt to reach new people. And we did. But after 10 years or so, we were kind of stuck with no room to grow. So in 2010, we shifted to a multi-site strategy in hopes that we, by spreading out, could reach more people in more communities. And we did. And now here we are in the early 2020s, post-pandemic, deploying digital ministry, reinventing ourselves to reach and serve a changing world. That's been Grace Chapel's story, decade after decade. Trying new things, launching new ministries, building new platforms, and even calling new pastors. I remember many years ago, speaking with my predecessor, Gordon McDonald, uh, when I was considering the call to come to Grace Chapel. I asked him why he was leaving, and he said, in part, it was because he felt like Grace needed a fresh start and a new leader who could help write the next chapter. Well, I actually called Gordon earlier this week uh, to let him know what was happening. And as we talked, I, I found myself saying the same thing to him that he had said to me nearly 25 years ago. It's just time for something new. I don't want Grace Chapel treading water for a couple years till I run out of gas or ideas. I've seen too many leaders stay too long and miss the moment. I want us to pivot now with fresh vision and new leadership for the next decade and beyond. And, and on a personal level, I'm also wanting to follow God into something new. I'm not sure what it is yet, but he's granted me so many years of, of rich ministry and experience. I'd love to find ways to, to serve the larger church and the kingdom in some new ways and to bring support here at Grace. Preaching, teaching, developing leaders for the church, for the marketplace, maybe some writing. And did I mention grandkids? So, the future holds great promise, as it always does with God. But, but right now, we've got an important year ahead of us. We'll spend a few weeks getting the transition and search process in motion, and we'll tell you about that in a minute. But we already have plans and dreams for this next year to come. And I can promise you, I will bring my very best right up until it's time to step off the stage. Well, there's lots more we could talk about, and, and we'll have time to do that in the days to come. But, but as we finish up today, let's, let's hear what the Spirit is saying to His church. First, we want to hear these words of affirmation. 
Grace Chapel, you are a vibrant, effective, and influential church with a rich history of sound teaching and institutional integrity and fruitful ministry. You have been uniquely blessed and you've been a blessing to the kingdom and to the world for three quarters of a century. It has been a joy and an honor to worship and serve and grow along with you these past 20 plus years. But let's also hear these words of warning, not to lose the love we had at first, not just our love for God and for one another, but love for the world, love for the gospel, love for people who are hurting and searching and maybe farther from God and church than ever. And then let's hear words of promise, which we find down in verse 7. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life. That's the tree that Adam and Eve never got to eat from. The tree that would have enabled them to enjoy life to the full with God forever. It's the tree we read about in Psalm 1, planted by streams of water that does not wither but bears fruit in every season. It's the tree that shows up at the end of the story in Revelation 22, right at the center of the, of the new heaven and earth. We read, On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Did you hear that? And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. When I read those words the other day, it brought tears to my eyes. Talk about a church for the world. How about a church that brings healing to all the people and all the nations of the earth? That's a vision worth giving 24 years of my life to. And it's a vision worthy of Grace Chapel's next chapter. May we settle for nothing less as we set our sights on the year and years to come. Well, thanks for letting me share from my heart and God's word today. It's one of my favorite things in all the world to do. And I love doing it with all of you. And look forward to, to more of it this next year that we'll spend together. But right now, we're going to invite uh, Cynthia Fantasia, our elder chair, to come and share a few words with us and then lead us in prayer. For the past months, the Board of Elders has been partnering with Brian and Karen as we move through this process. Thank you, Brian and Karen, for your transparency, your willingness to share from your heart um, what you're feeling, your thoughts, your ideas, and your passions. So we appreciate that. And I speak for the entire board. Thank you. Even though we've been talking about this for a while, when you see it in print and you hear the words, like you, we've received the news with mixed feelings, mixed emotions. We're excited for you both as you um, enter a new chapter in your lives. Excited for Grace Chapel and the opportunities that lie ahead. And yet at the same time, we're sad to say farewell to what we know, what we're comfortable with, and then move into an unknown season. 
In the weeks to come, we'll be sharing with you the plans that, we've, that have been put in place, the search committee that will be formed, and more details you'll hear about as they become available. We'll be sharing more on June 4th in our services and at our annual celebration on June 11th. And we'll be posting updates on our website at grace.org slash search. But for now, we as a church family, we pray. We pray together. We pray individually for Brian, for Karen, and for our church. So would you join me in prayer as we begin this journey? Gracious and sovereign Lord, thank you for being God. Thank you for always being available and always eager to hear our prayers. And thank you for providing peace in these times of change. Over and over, Lord, I'm reminded of Jeremiah's words in chapter 6, verse 16. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you'll find rest for your souls. That's where we are right now, Lord. We're at the crossroads. Lord, give us eyes to look. May we remember the many ways you have shown your majesty and faithfulness. Cause our minds to reflect on the incredible leadership and shepherding we as a church family have been blessed to receive from Pastor Brian over these 20 plus years. And you have promised that when we call on you, you will answer us and show us the way. Lord, I pray that we as a church will walk in the way you show us, that you will lead Brian and Karen in the way they should walk, and we will all rejoice in following your lead and finding rest for our souls. Lord, bless Brian and Karen with good health and clear vision for this new chapter in their lives. Bless those at Grace Chapel who will join the search committee. And even now, Lord, I pray that you'll begin a stirring in the heart of the one you have selected to lead Grace Chapel, to continue the remarkable kingdom work that has been done since Grace's beginning days. We celebrate the past, anticipate the future, and rejoice that you have gone before us. So we walk ahead with confidence in you, our great, our faithful, and our wise God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.